Welcome to the Master of the Workflow podcast. I'm Lawrence Jordan, and today our interview is with Alan Bell, ACE, one of the most talented and versatile editors working today. After becoming one of the earliest adopters of nonlinear editing technology and a successful assistant editor, Alan went beyond Media Composer to master a variety of visual effects software packages, ultimately becoming a visual effects supervisor and creating his own visual effects company. His deep knowledge of technology and love of the editing craft has served him well, with credits such as 500 Days of Summer, Gulliver's Travels, The Amazing Spider-Man, and two of the Hunger Games trilogy, he is one of Hollywood's most in-demand editors. This interview is chock full of information for anyone interested in a career in post. I'd like to thank Alan in advance for taking the time to share with us some of his insights on both the craft and the business of feature film editing. So my first question is, how did you get your start in film editing? Um, okay, well, I started out as um, an apprentice editor, but before that, I wasn't really interested in the film business. I loved the movies, and I, um, I was a rock climber. That's all I wanted to do with my life was to climb rocks. Uh, left high school um, after a year and a half, took my GED. So I had a diploma, but I never really went to graduation. Uh, went and climbed rocks in Yosemite. Had a very close friend who was a film editor an assistant film editor who worked with Robert Layton, who at that time cut all of Rob Reiner's movies. And so I knew Bob socially, and Steve Nevius was my very close friend. Uh, and he'd always, I, he just wanted to be an editor and a director. And I just kind of wanted to be outside and enjoy life. So I, it's, you know, I didn't go to film school, um, which uh, I'm not suggesting that film school isn't a good thing, but I, it wasn't what I needed. Um, so what happened is uh, around the age of 22, I started to realize that you know rock climbing wasn't going to be very lucrative. I was guiding, taking people up on climbs, and you know sometimes you would get hurt, no health insurance. Um, I would take a lot of film people out. They all had the money, and a lot of them were very stressed. A lot of writers and directors and stunt people, and I thought, what do they got to be stressed about? I mean, you know, it can't be that hard. So um, I eventually, make a long story short, I asked a friend, how do you get into editing? I want, I want to check this out. So I went and visited uh, Bob Layton's cutting room and saw him cutting uh, The Princess Bride and was like, wow, that looks, this looks really fun. And you know, I actually, in, I actually thought it was going to be an easy, I thought this would be an easy job. Fortunately for me, I loved computers at a very early age, so I was really into technology. And film, I loved movies and story, so I loved working with the film. And basically, I became an apprentice editor on a Roger Corman movie, working for uh, the famous Norman Holland, who, you know, Norman Holland uh, was my first mentor, and he gave me my very first job. So uh, on this movie called Daddy's Boys for Roger Corman, I worked for free, and then he hired me as an assistant on some low budget like uh, you know movie of the week uh, I can't even remember what it's called and then eventually I became the second assistant on a movie called Heather's that he edited um, and then after that Marianne Brandon gave me a job as a first assistant that I was totally unqualified for but I I managed I you know I did it um, and made all the mistakes that you make when you're young and insecure and um, but still I managed so uh, that's kind of how I started I was an apprentice editor I learned on the job. I first started out by working for free, 
and then slowly develop these relationships. I had to do all non-union work because at that time the union was closed and you couldn't. So Bob Layton tried to hire me, but he couldn't. Um, and then eventually what happened is I became, um, I got into the union and I was able to take a job with Bob and Steve. And Steve was moving up as an editor. And uh, eventually I became the first assistant of Bob Layton. And he kind of mentored me from there um, and taught me how to edit really. Taught me about story and, and pacing and you know how to build characters and performances through cuts. Um, so I'm very, very grateful to Bob, and he shared some credits with me on some of Rob's later movies. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I got my, my start. How did you make the transition to full editor? Well, what basically happened is um, Bob and I worked together on a number of movies. He, unfortunately for him, became very ill and needed to have a, a, a medical, he had to have a heart transplant. Um, so I became, you know, I helped quite a bit. I was doing a lot of editing with him, and so I became, uh, like for instance, on The Green Mile, he was very ill and he had to leave, and he, he was basically just going to start that movie uh, with, um, uh, for Francis, uh, Richard Francis Bruce, who was the editor on those movies. Uh, but Richard couldn't come on right away, so Bob was going to do just the assembly, and then we were going to go on to a Rob Reiner film. Well, Bob became sick, and so I, I did the assembly of that. And then when we got on to Rob's film, he shared a credit with me, and we co-edited that movie. But really, it was Bob's movie. Um, and I basically just did whatever I could to support him. But when I decided to make the jump to editor, um, you know, I looked around, and I realized that um, I had a lot of friends who had gone from assisting to editing, you know, they got their first feature and then they went back to assisting and it seemed like those people struggled to to kind of make it as editors and what I saw were, were two things one is it occurred to me that the people that hired me aside from Bob you know uh, the people who hired me as an assistant would always see me as an assistant they were always looking for that other person on the horizon who's an editor who has a bunch of bunch of movies under the belt. So I looked at going from assisting to editing as in some ways starting over. You know, I may have some relationships uh, with producers and directors as an assistant, but those I never really expected to mature into editing gigs, which I know has happened for some people, but but when you look at it, more, more often than not, that wasn't going to be my avenue. So I realized that if I kept going back and forth, it's going to be much harder for me to build, you know, that cadre of friends and support group and, you know, producers and directors who wanted to keep working with me as an editor. So I decided that I would um, use some of my other skills to work to make ends meet while I was in between jobs. Because I did, my very first movie as a solo editor was a movie called Bait. It was for Castle Rock. Um, it was Antoine Fuqua's second movie. And I'm convinced that he only hired me because he thought the studio wanted him to. And I don't really think they cared. But I was cheap. I had just finished a Rob Reiner movie. They put me up for it. I got the job. I was sort of elated. I went off and did this movie with him. And then I didn't work for a year and a half. You know, couldn't get my next gig. Lots of assistant jobs were offered to me. I passed them all up. Um, and I just started doing um, visual effects work. And I went to work for my, my father-in-law's, I'm sorry, my my stepfather's company for a while 
just to make ends meet so I wouldn't have to take another assisting job. Once I decided to edit, that was it. I was gonna edit or not. Um, and slowly but surely my visual effects capabilities grew and so I was able to augment the time in between work as an editor with visual effects work. Tell us about being an early adopter to digital editing. Um, well, it you know, in the early days it was, it was difficult uh, only because the tools were kind of you know, hodgepodge, we didn't have any any guaranteed systems. You, you sort of, it was like the Wild West, you had to sort of develop things on your own. Um, and I would say that early on what I noticed, I was, I love digital technology, I always have. Um, when I saw the very first computer, I was like, that is cool, and I was really into it. Taught myself how to program, so I really, I was very into, and I still am, into technology at a young age. Uh, you know, for a group of people who make changes on a regular basis, I mean, editors probably uh, deal with change thousands of times in a day, at least hundreds of times in a day. Um, we are the most resistant to change as individuals. That is what I discovered when I was younger. So when we went from film to digital, you know, back then all the old timers were lamenting about how, well, you know, it's just not as good because you don't see it in reverse when you're rewinding on the cam and you know you could miss this you could miss that and and really all of that was just basically in my opinion big ex excuses for not having to learn and continue to stay on top of the change so i always looked at change which digital technology is a sea of change it's just a constant wave you have to stay on top of it it's like surfing you know if you stop you'll tumble and then you're going to have to work really hard to get back out to those waves where you can surf again. So you need to stay on top of it and stay out by the by where the waves are breaking and really focus on what those changes are. So I recognized that at a very, very early age that if I was going to get ahead, I needed to approach things differently. Um, so I was the last person who was going to complain about change. I was just going to embrace it. Um, and I feel like the challenges of di digital technology the only real challenge there is, is that you have to study. You have to be prepared to work and work hard um, at learning new things because editing is not the kind of job, if you're just doing cuts only, yeah, you can learn that on the job, I suppose. But if you're trying to do some unique, you know, thing where you're doing, you know, cross-cutting, um, some musical editing, a lot of things like that when a, with a director in the room and you haven't, you have no experience, it's going to be obvious to them. If you decide you want to do a split screen or some digital manipulation of the image and you haven't practiced it with, with the director in the room, you can't just go to the help menu. It's, there is no one button click, it's going to happen. So if you want to um, be successful at this, you're going to have to study and continually learn. Um, and that's one of the things that I've really, I embraced at a very early age. It's, um, it's just part of my ethos, it's what I do and that's been really helpful to me but i'd be lying to you if i didn't tell you that it's challenging i mean working with digital technology it's challenging it's a it's a constant you know three steps forward two steps backward three steps forward every time you think you got it down something new comes online and if you're not aware of it that's a problem and if you are aware of it you need to take the time to focus and learn how to use it or at least be aware of what its capable what its capabilities are um so yeah Hopefully that answers the question. How important do you think it is to be technically oriented to be a film editor today? Here's what I think. 
I think that there are a lot of film editors out there who want to believe that they are a creative force and that is all they are, is a creative force. And that's great if that's your opinion. I 100% wholly disagree with that outlook. I believe I am a technical person. I believe I'm a creative person. I honestly believe that I'm an artist. But at the end of the day, I am a service provider. Okay, I get the job because the director believes that I'm going to have something to contribute, both creatively, technically, and in friendship and honesty as well. So when I go into a job, it's true with anyone, even a director is a service provider to a certain degree. They're providing a service for the studio. We as editors are providing services to the studio, the producers, and the director. Maybe not in that order, probably director. Film, director, studio, right? Um, to suggest that we don't, we shouldn't have technical capabilities is, it's really cutting yourself short. And it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people are getting aged out quicker and people are finding themselves frustrated and they're not able to get ahead because directors are used to people who are there and are able to do and perform what they need quickly. And when you have, you're going to be competing against people like me, okay? I can sit down with a director and I can, I can cut a scene just as good as anybody out there. It's all, the fact that I know technology doesn't mean I don't know anything about story and pace and character arc, right? Doesn't mean I can't connect two people together. In fact, I'm using technology to do that in ways that we never could before. And once a director's worked with somebody who has this skill set, they want to continue to work with people who want that skill set. So I have always approached editing as a service industry. I am a craftsman who has a capability. I'm able to provide services to the directors and the producers and the story and the movie. Um, but that's, that's my primary function. So when you look at it is what, how can I add value to what I'm providing to make these people want to work with me? The best thing to happen to you is to get so many offers that you have to say no and the only way that's going to happen is if those directors and producers are talking to each other and saying you know this like this guy not only does he did he provide us a great first assembly and then you know we go through when we had issues and those scenes didn't work the way we wanted he was able to dust off his software and come up with something completely new which is a lot of what we do right we take stories and we rewrite the movie in post-production, well, what if you could change a scene entirely? What if you painted out a character and you changed it so it wasn't anything like what was on the page? It had a completely different function. Sometimes you're on a movie and that's, that's your job as an editor. And if you can't use those tools and you're not technical enough and it's not second nature to you, you're not going to be able to do it quickly for a director. If you can't do it quickly for a director, don't offer it up because they're not going to be happy. What are some of the other software packages you work with? Well, um, I've, you know, I've cut films on uh, Final Cut Pro. Uh, I'm pretty proficient with Adobe Premiere, though I haven't cut any features on it. Um, and, you know, Avid as well, Media Composer. And then uh, Resolve, I'm starting to, you know, take a strong look at. Um, so in editing tools, there, nothing is off the table for me really. Um, Avid is the it's my go-to tool because of the nature of Hollywood. But I also utilize um, compositing tools. So, you know, I'm proficient in After Effects, though it's not my first choice. Um, I use Fusion a lot. For, as my digital compositor, I would say Fusion is my number one go-to, um, which is now built into Resolve, and it's also a standalone product. 
um, uncomfortable with Nuke, I use Photoshop. Um, for for Previs, I use a program called um, uh, iClone, which is a really dumb sort of machinima, real-time 3D animation program, but it's super easy to use. So there are times when, oh, we need a shot, and I'll be cutting something together, you know, and I'll be able to animate that quickly with this iClone tool. I also use Cinema 4D for 3D modeling animation and then another program called ZBrush which is predominantly for modeling but like for instance a, a good example would be I just did a movie called um, Red Sparrow recently where um, we had to create a, a little pool of blood after somebody was hit in the head and I wanted to go into previews and not just have no blood there you know instead of having a marker I decided to make a pool of blood so with ZBrush I was able to very quickly and easily create a blob that would be the blood and animate it to get you know to go from under the head like this texture it render it out competent infusion so I use ZBrush to create the model which is super easy to literally you know the whole thing to put blood in this shot took me about 15 minutes and um, and that's because I knew how to use the tools and I, I enjoy using the tools and I, I play with them and do what if scenarios when I'm not working. Like, oh, what if I need to do this? I, and I try it. And so you're constantly learning and studying. Now, I could have had one of my assistants do it, you know, no doubt about it. Um, but I don't have any assistants that have the same level of capability as me, although many of my assistants are getting better and better at this. And that's kind of what I'm looking for. Um, so, but ZBrush, Cinema 4D, Fusion, uh, Nuke. When I was doing finals on a film, I often use Nuke or Fusion for finals. But those—that's my main core tool set. Do you think the ability to work with visual effects is now a requirement to become an editor or an assistant editor? Um, I think it's it's a huge benefit. Okay, I don't know if it's a requirement for every job. I mean, I actually think that I could probably get jobs if I didn't have these capabilities, but I think that what happens is I get a job and the director sees what I'm capable of and goes, wow, this is really great. Then when they go work with someone else, they're like, ooh, like it's, you know, I, it, it takes me two days to get that, that thing looking great when Alan can do it in 15 minutes or, you know, he can tell me, oh, this is going to be a two hour job, you know, I'll have it tomorrow, you know. Um, so I don't know if it's a requirement, but I can certainly say in a, if you think of it as a service industry and you want to be able to provide those services, the people who have those skill sets are going to be sought after first. So you're going to become second tier. I guess the best thing to do is to ask yourself, when you go somewhere and you need a service and you ask somebody and they say, that's not my job, do you think I'm going to go back to this guy? Because they, you know, they're like, they don't change oil. They only do brakes, right? You're probably going to, when you get that, when you find that mechanic that'll do it all, you're going to go to that mechanic. Now, I'm not suggesting that as editors, we should all be able to do final visual effects. We should all be able to do final sound work. Um, what I'm saying is that as editors, we're constantly striving to create as finished a product as we can for the audiences that are going to see our movie and have a perception of that work that we've done and feed it back to us. 
the closer we can get to a final looking and sounding product before we turn it over to the visual effects and the sound people, um, the better it's going to be for us in terms of the notes we get from the studio and the better we're going to be able to realize certain things. Sometimes um, you need to be able to try things to find out if they don't work. So you can say I went down that path. Being able to do certain visual effects um, allows you to experiment in ways that don't cost production a gazillion dollars. So a good example is there were a number of things that we did in 500 Days of Summer that I was able to experiment in the cutting room with that, you know, oh, what if we did this? What if we did that? Um, you know, incidentally on that particular movie, I did every single visual effect in that movie. I, I had people working for me who did most of them, but I did every temp effect in, in most of the finals as well, except for the 2D bird. Now, I animated that bird in 3D so we'd have a bird and then I cell shaded it, but we wanted to get like a real Disney animator so it looked more like, a, you know, the blue bird of happiness. Um, so that's the only effect that wasn't done. But like, for instance, there's a, there's a thing where he's walking down the street and it turns into, a, you know, images. Well, being able to sort of play around with that and do that quickly while we were shooting allowed us the flexibility of going, is this what you want, Mark? Is this the shot the way you want it? As opposed to um, sending it off to an effects house and having it come back and going, oh, okay, well, this is what we spent our money on. Sometimes having that capability will allow you to up the ante on what the movie's going to choose or not choose. And um, so I think it's pretty essential that if you don't know how to use those tools, that you have an understanding of what they're capable of and you have an understanding of what it takes to do certain things. So like, you know, anything's possible, but from an editorial standpoint, you know, like everybody talks about, oh, well, I use, you know, um, uh, morph cuts. I, I put a little morph blend on one. Well, if, if your head is like this and then it's like this, it's not going to work. Now, it may look good enough in AVR 36 for you, but knowing that when you give that to somebody on the other end, that the amount of work they're going to have to do, in order to make that really work, they're going to have to do what's called a, a 3D camera projection to get the head to line up and do some real animation. That's a very expensive shot. So if you understand what the limitations are, like, oh, I want to take this mouth and put it over. Well, my head's like this and then my head's like that. The mouth might work, but it might be distorted. You may actually have to tweak it. Knowing what has to be done and how far you can push it helps um, in being able to actually achieve what you want, you know. What kind of features are missing in today's nonlinear editing software? Well, I think what hasn't changed for me is the paradigm in all these editing pieces of software about how I can organize and think about my footage. So basically there are two main ways to work with footage. Text-based, you know, little line that says this is a close-up or whatever um, with some sort of description and maybe you can color code it and it's in a column. Um, and then there's frame views and most of them are pretty rudimentary. I mean, even Avid's, which is probably the best out there, is still incredibly rudimentary. But there isn't a very easy way for me to organize my footage and all my clips in a way that is meaningful to me um, the way that I think I should be able to. I mean, if you look at the actual 
tools that we've been using to cut movies since Avid came around and Media 100 and all the rest of them, that aspect of filmmaking hasn't changed at all. And it's a huge pox on the nonlinear editing software companies, in my opinion. When I And the reason why I'm so pissed off about this, and it's my pet peeve, is because I've been using 3D tools, you know, like Cinema 4D and ZBrush and compositing tools for as long as they've been around, and I've watched those progress tenfold. And the capabilities and what, they're, what you're able to do um, is absolutely amazing when you see that our editing tools really basically they've been chasing codecs and digital metadata you know camera information but they haven't really approached from an ergonomic standpoint or a creative intellectual standpoint about how we organize footage in our minds because that's what we really do when we're cutting right we get a whole stack of, of dailies and we have to somehow organize that in our heads and make notes and you know the old school way is you watch dailies and you write notes and then you somehow get those notes into the the editing software and you try to remember what you did and you cut it together what I'm talking about is I am cutting and I'm chasing camera as quick as possible and I've looked at all my dailies and I've made notes I want to be able to open up my my bin or my editor and know what I was thinking two months ago when I last opened that up what clip is good and why when the directors there like what what choices did I make? Are there any notes? Why aren't they apparent to me? Why do I have to drill down? Why do I have to go to a piece of paper? Like there's so many ways that um, that software can be improved. What about a product like Avid okay. Script Sync? All right. Well, I love Script Sync. I think it's fantastic, and I love Phrase Um I don't think Avid Script Sync works very well the way they Avid thinks you should use it. They want you to throw a whole script in and deal with the whole script. I basically have my assistants break it down into scene. So I have a, a, a script sync for each scene um, because that way then when it crashes it doesn't take an hour to, to open or reload um, uh, and it's easier for them when you get different lines and stuff like that. I think that's fantastic. The problem that I have is that there aren't enough visual tools, right? Because a lot of times when you're cutting a, a dialogue scene, script sync is fantastic. Where the, where the tools really fall down is when you're trying to, you've got the script is three lines. Car chase, guy gets shot in the chest, right? Car chase, guy gets shot in the chest. In the script, that's it. But then you have 12 hours of footage that's spread over six to 12 bins. And we're talking big, full bins. Some of it's stunt double, some of it's the actual actor, some of it's green screen, some of it's, and you've got to organize, script sync doesn't work for any of that, right? And we're talking a lot of footage, and you have to be able to organize it in some way. So I love script sync. I think it's fantastic. Um, that works when there's words. What's it like to go from editing a small film like 500 Days of Summer to something huge like The Amazing Spider-Man? You know, every movie is both the same and different. It <laughs> doesn't really make sense. But, you know, you're always trying to make every movie as good as you possibly can, and you're throwing... 100% of everything you have, you know, all your capabilities, you're throwing them into the pot and doing the best you can. Uh, the thing about smaller indie films is that uh, there isn't quite as much pressure because there isn't as much money on the line, but I would say that it's, it's you work just as hard, if not harder. Um, I don't know how it's possible to work harder, but you definitely, they're different beasts in a lot of ways. So like, 
one of the things that happens on the larger movies is there are huge amounts of periods of the day that are taken up in meetings. So if, there, if visual effects are involved, you could figure at least three to four hours minimum a week is out the door in visual effects meetings. And that, those are early. As, it gets, as the movie progresses, you, know, you may be in visual effects reviews for two or three hours a day, every day of the week. There's a lot of talking about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. There's a lot of, you know, you're cutting previs sometimes and storyboards, um, spending a lot of time kind of chasing camera, but at the same time, like, you don't have everything and you're having to cut it together before it's all done, which is a very hard kind of thing to wrap your head around because as editors, we're used to having everything before we get going. Um, so, and there's the politics, there are politics in all films. But when there's $200 million on the line and there's a number of producers who, you know, are, are all vying to make, you know, the film the way they want um, and the studio may have different ideas than the director or, you know, mitigating those waters, those kind of, you know, those, those seas, um, that takes a lot of time and that isn't exactly the most creative period in your life. And, you know, so there's time throughout the day where you have to deal with people and as editors we tend to like to just you know put me in my room give me all my footage and you know let me work with it and bring the director in and, you know, we'll screen it and see how it goes but you know there's a lot of voices you have to um, listen to those voices you have to be honest with those voices and you also have to edit so the larger films it's it's much more like that now when it really depends on the director who's your leader right so if you have you know, Francis Lawrence and Mark Webb, they're both very good at, you know, trying to make the same type of movie a studio is. But if you end up with a director that's, that has a completely different idea than the studio has, then you're going to be in the middle and there's going to be some politics and you're going to have to figure out how to be both loyal and honest to all parties. Um, and those are just some difficult ethical questions that you find yourself tasked with answering. Can you tell us a little bit about your workflow on a film like The Hunger Games? You know, there was it's it changed. The Hunger Games changed my workflow. So when I first, after The Amazing Spider-Man was sort of the process of my changing this, but, you know, I, I watch everything. So I get the dailies for that day, and I watch everything. And on Amazing Spider-Man, I watch it all in the, in the theater, and I wrote down notes on paper. The Hunger Games, I... Didn't, I watched dailies with the director and I was actually on a set with, with him where I had a trailer on set. So I had a screening room and a big trailer and that was where I cut. And so at lunchtime, he and some of the crew would come and we'd watch selects. Now I would keep notes of what the director said with those selects, but we weren't watching all the dailies. So then what I would do is I would wait until I had a bin prepared in some semblance of organization that my assistants would put together. And then I would watch everything. And as I watched everything, I would make notes in the bin. So either on a locator on the clip itself, or I would um, go into the description, you know, and I, I work in frame view, so I would go into the description and type something in, and then color code the clip in some way. At that time, you couldn't really, in frame view, you couldn't highlight a color around the clip, but I would create JPEGs that were color-coded and even, you know, right 
things on them and throw them behind the clip in the bin. So I'd look, I'd look at it and go, oh, that one's green, that one's red, that one, you know, whatever that meant things to me. So I would watch everything. Every, you can't cut a frame until you've seen all the footage. And if you, if you do, you are making a huge mistake. Okay, because I guarantee the one you don't watch that you don't cut in is going to be the one that you should have cut in. Just guarantee that. You will learn the hard way if you're not listening to me right now. So I watch it all and then I edit it together. Um, and then usually I set it aside for an hour or two and I go on to something else so that I can kind of come back and look at it. Um, so that's my basic workflow. Um, and I try not to do too many fancy stuff. You know, I really try to work with the footage before I get into split screens and speed changes and that sort of stuff. I mean, sometimes I, I will, like if I know the director has asked me, you know, if we're watching dailies and he indicates that he ha this is his intention or her intention for the scene, um, and then I watch all the days and I realize, whoa, the dailies aren't matching the intention. Like there's, some, there's something missing here. Can I create it? Then I might. But for the most part, I'm trying to kind of keep it um, to nothing fancy. And I'm using both the notes I got from this from the director, if I got any at all, and the script. And I'm really trying my best to keep the cutscene within the intention of what I see on the page. As opposed to looking and go, well, wouldn't it be better if it was like this? That I do later because uh, when you're assembling a movie or you're doing the first pass, I think it's best to use the roadmap and the best roadmap we have is the script. Obviously, if the footage diverse is so divergent from the script, then that's a completely different set of rules, but that's what I try to do. So that's my main workflow. What advice do you have for people just starting out who want to become feature film editors? Um, I advise you to work incredibly hard, to constantly study. Don't, yeah, I read something in some book about experience you know you 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 see people who go oh I have 30 years of experience doing this um, and some people have 30 years of experience doing that and some people only have one or two years but a person who has 30 years of experience doing the same they learn something in one year and they're doing the same thing year after year that's not 30 years of experience okay the people who are really going to progress are the ones who are always open to learning. So the first thing I have to say to you is be prepared to study and learn new things and embrace change in your life as well as on the screen as much as possible. And then, you know, find somebody to mentor you. Like take advice from people, work hard, recognize that you are owed nothing. Um, kids who come in and, and want to, you know, direct and produce, that's fantastic. Don't send me your resume as an editor if you want to be my assistant that says editor, you know, assistant editor, director, producer, on the t like focus. If you want to assist, have a resume for assisting. If you want to direct, go out and direct. Editing may be a good road to directing, but it's not the, it's, if you want to edit, you have to focus on editing. Assisting is a great way to learn about editing. Make sure that you, um, don't take an approach which is us and them, which is a lot, I, I find a lot of people do that in their careers. Um, when people ask you to do certain things, like, well, that's not my job, you know, don't become offended all the time if you're expected to work on weekends. That's the way it works in this business. At the same, at the same time, try to align yourself with people who are like-minded. 
you know, uh, as an assistant, one of the great virtues you have in, is that you can actually do your job and take a phone call every now and then. When you get into the editor chair, you're not doing your job if you're not actually focusing on the material. Um, and that's the God's honest truth. I mean, sometimes you, you're talking about the material. Sometimes your job is sitting and talking to directors or other editors or assistants about what's happening on screen. But for the most part, you're focusing on the movie all the time. And you're doing it even when you're home. Um, and recognize that life balance is going to be difficult. So if you decide you want a life in editing, you know, make sure you exercise and you eat right and um, you know, try to have fun because you're going to work harder and longer hours than most people in the business. You know, you're going to start usually a week to a few days before production and you're going to be one of the last people on the film. So besides the director, the editor and the assistant editors tend to be on longer than anybody else in the movie. Um, maybe the producers are on a little longer, but let's face it, you know, they can, they can do their job with their phone in front of their faces, most of them. Um, so I would just say be ready to work really hard. Remember that everybody you meet is going to potentially be your boss or coworker or peer, whether it's a person carrying, you know, bringing the coffee in, whatever. These are all people that you should be networking with, that you should be comfortable talking to, and you should treat like a family member. Right? Respect everyone and always be honest and know when that honesty is useful and when it's not. This was great. I really enjoyed talking with Alan and I hope you did too. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast at your podcast provider of choice. And you can also find us on YouTube and Facebook. And we look forward to you becoming part of our film editing community.